the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. How do you measure success when it comes to impacting our local community, our own Judea, for Christ? Well, we'll spend some time talking about that today as we're joined by the lead pastor of City Light Bible Church of the South Bay, Pastor Chris G. And Pastor Chris, great to see you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. It's a pleasure to be on. This, of course, is a brand new church plant. Well, not necessarily brand new. You're about 18 months old. You were launched out of Hillside Church there in San Jose and our dear friend, uh, Pastor Keith Crosby, as a fresh church plant in an area that, quite frankly, is not necessarily welcoming to churches. And I say that in the sense that there's probably a feeling of over-secularization of the San Francisco Bay Area. And largely, if we look at church attendance, I think we find that true. And particularly as we look at the South Bay, we're looking at individuals in the high-tech sector that are well-educated, lead very busy lives, may not necessarily have any affinity towards Christian faith or religious practice of any sort. And so some folks would look at that and say, wow, with so many challenges— of doing a fresh church plant in the San Francisco Bay Area, and in specifically in Silicon Valley, how difficult is that? And how do you go about measuring success, given the fact that so often in life, certainly in, in, in Western culture, we measure success based on numbers? How many widgets did we sell? How many tickets did we sell? How many people are showing up and putting the fannies in the seats? Yeah, absolutely. We want to buck that trend and not define success in the way the world does. We want to define success as a church the way God defines it. And in a word, it is faithfulness. First Corinthians 4, 1 to 2, uh, Paul says that he is a steward and he wants to faithfully steward the mysteries of God that have been entrusted to him. And so uh, we are God's people who have been entrusted with his word. And so we want to preach his word faithfully and clearly and often. We want to minister his word to uh, his people. We want to take his word and the truth of the gospel, the hope that's found in Jesus Christ, and uh, spread it to as many people as we possibly can and uh, you're, you're definitely right that this is a tough area. Uh, many people would say that this is hard soil. Uh, any uh, Barna or Pew Research survey that you read about will tell you that the San Francisco Bay Area is by far the number one unchurched area in the nation. And uh, you're also right to say that really the, the true American idol in this area is comfort, uh, people are well-educated, people are affluent, people have good jobs, and in a temporal sense, they they don't feel any need for Christ. But at the same time, after playing that game for a while of climbing the corporate ladder and of making technology their God and of growing their their houses and their bank accounts and their, their number of cars... Uh, we know that that they will eventually hit a wall and find that kind of lifestyle unfulfilling, that they may put a Band-Aid on uh, the hurts that they have, and they may uh, seek to fill their eternal longing with temporal, earthly things. But ultimately, we were created for eternity. Uh, we are eternal beings with eternity written on our hearts uh, Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And so we want to be there for when people find their hearts restless. We want to be there when they find that uh, they, they have accomplished all that they have at their tech company and are wanting more. And uh, we want to give them the God who, who fully 
and finally satisfies and uh, the God who offers hope through his son to secure uh, not just peace in this life, uh, but peace and comfort and eternal joy uh, forever in heaven. It's amazing how quickly we'll run out of sort of earthly solutions to our sense of restlessness or perhaps our, our sense of dissatisfaction in life. And so we often see people that are seeking material success, growing the bank, bigger bank account, buying the bigger house, driving the fancier car, things of this sort. And then they find out that as they go up each rung of the ladder, that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction continues to be fleeting, continues to escape them. They climb higher and higher and higher up the ladder, and yet it continues to elude them. And then an event comes along in life. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's an unexpected financial disaster, or perhaps notification from a doctor of a diagnosis of cancer, some sort of life-altering event that causes us to stop and begin to ponder and to reevaluate where we stand. And I think that's, that's even true for the church to a certain degree. We've seen this trend certainly in the Western world where we've, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, tended to focus on numerical sense as the yardstick of how well we're doing instead of focusing on, instead of the quantity, rather the quality the kind of relationships that people are building with Christ, the sense of resilience that they have in their faith, that whatever life tosses at them, they're able to to gird up their loins and, and, and plow through and continue to, to seek God and to continue to, to stay in fellowship with Him. And really, I think at the end of the day, that, that ought to be the goal of all of us when it comes to the matter of being disciples and making disciples, that if we focus on the, the spiritual quality of our life, the quantity in terms of the number of lives we're capable of impacting, how the church grows, I think will eventually take care of itself. Absolutely. Uh, Jesus said that he is the good shepherd, and the primary role of the shepherd is to feed the sheep. Uh, the sheep are hungry. The sheep are susceptible to malnourishment. And so they need the the nourishing truth of, of God's word. And uh, pastors and leaders are called shepherds as well. We're, we're under shepherds. We are those who fall under the authority of the, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so uh, we as pastors also take this responsibility seriously of feeding the sheep. John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so what you're saying is exactly right. God's people eventually will want to hear the words of of their savior. Uh, they will, they will crave that. They will realize that if they, they go without God's word, if they go without a steady intake of the preaching of God's word, if they go without a steady intake of personal devotions in reading God's word, that there, there's a famine in their soul and they're going to seek out the, the spiritual nourishment that they need. And uh, that's, that's something that that's really exciting to see in our church and in other churches as well that people show up because they want to hear expository preaching. They want to hear the words that are sweeter than honey, as Psalm 119 says. And uh, that's where you do see some numerical growth as well, where people who have been out of the practice of church because of COVID or because of a bad experience at one point in their life with church, uh, they eventually will want to hear the shepherd's voice. And if churches will provide that for them, then God's people will naturally fall in line and, and, fall, and, and follow the shepherd, come back into the fold, uh, because they find that as a, as a Christian, as a true Christian, that's exactly what their hearts desire. For folks that are new to the San Francisco Bay Area, Pastor G, and, and, and maybe they're looking for a, a church home in the San Francisco Bay region, tell us a bit about uh, what all God is doing at City Light Bible Church. Yeah, it has been a great joy to serve at City Light Bible Church. Uh, we've been around for just about a year and a half, and God has done some amazing things. Uh, we started off with a really solid core team who loved the Lord and loved others, and uh, we, we've grown since then. God has added some very faithful Christians who have stepped in to lead small groups and lead ministry teams, and at the same time, he's brought some unchurched people 
who have never darkened the door of a church and are hearing about Christ for the first time. Uh, God has also brought some de-churched people who used to go to church but stopped for whatever reason and have now gotten back into the habit and are now once again sitting under the preaching of God's word and learning from him and growing in their faith. Um, As I mentioned, there's people who once were pretty apathetic in sharing their faith that are now excited to do that. There are people who were were starving for, for God's truth and now are reading the Bible on a consistent basis and beholding wondrous things from God's law and just finding great joy in that. And so it's been a real joy to be a part of this church and to see God work. Tell us a bit about services. I know that you guys are meeting down at Mission College. They're in the uh, hospitality building. Uh, Give us a bit of a a look into uh, when you get together and maybe extend an invitation to our listeners to uh, come and participate. It would be a joy. We would love to have you, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, whether you are a committed believer who who knows what you believe, you love the Lord, we'd love to have you and strengthen your faith, equip you for the work of ministry, uh, help you grow, uh, put off sin in your life, uh, or if you're just searching and uh, you don't know what you believe, but you have questions about Christianity, you have questions about religion in general, questions about eternity, heaven or hell, uh, that, that's exactly why we planted this church, to help people like you figure out what you believe, to, to help you stand on uh, the solid rock that is biblical truth. And so we'd love for you to come. Uh, we meet at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings in Santa Clara. We meet at Mission College in the hospitality management room. Uh, it has been a blessing to meet in that space, and uh, there we're going to worship the Lord. We make our services the the same cry as the psalmist, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And so we will uh, together pray to God. We will join our voices to sing to God. Uh, We will do expository preaching where you will not hear the the preferences, opinions, or hobby horses of people like myself, Um, but you will hear the the truth of God's word. Uh, We will seek to explain the Bible as clearly and as powerfully as possible to make it relevant to your life so that you can walk away with truth that uh, not only encourages you, not only comforts you, uh, not only gives you a bigger vision of who God is, but will be immediately applicable for Monday through Saturday. If you have um, perhaps poked around at, at churches before and and come to uh, draw the conclusion that not many are uh, teaching directly from the Word and, and rather tend to spend more time sharing stories and tickling the ears, uh, that will not at all be your experience at City Light Bible Church. So if you're looking for a fellowship that is Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, you will certainly find a home, again, at City Light Bible Church, Details available on the web at citylightbible.org. Our thanks to lead pastor, Pastor Chris G., for being with us today. Pastor G., thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. Love is a verb. It ain't a thing. It's not something you own. It's not something you scream. When you show me love, I don't need your words. Yeah, love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. Love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. Any of you guys recognize that song? John Mayer. Uh, Over 10 years ago, reminded us that love is a verb. And I wonder what you think about that statement Perhaps there is a part of you, maybe the more precise grammarian side of you that wants to remind Mr. Mayor that love is also a noun. But we get it, right? We know what he's saying. He's reminding us that the best way to show your love is not by speaking, but by doing. Love demonstrates itself in actions. You can say a thousand times, I love you, I love you, I love you, but it doesn't mean a thing if that love is not backed up with care, service, and sacrifice. Today, as we continue our sermon series on the church, we're going to look at the topic of fellowship. 
And we're going to look at a passage that reminds us that fellowship is a verb. Fellowship is something you do. Fellowship is a call to action. Certainly the church is a group to be a part of, a community of people you're comfortable with and fit in with because you share the same convictions, the same heart, the same worldview, the same passion for the glory of Jesus Christ. So certainly the church is a place to belong. But at the same time, the church is a call to action. The Bible uses a really sweet, really tender metaphor to describe the church. And that is the metaphor of the family. God is our father and we are brothers and sisters with one another. A family is certainly a place to belong. You share the same last name. You will always be a part of this family. This family will always love you. A family is a place to belong. And yet at the same time, to be a part of a family is a call to action. To be a part of a family means that you work. You help cook dinner. You vacuum the floor. You do the dishes. To be a part of a church means that you engage with the family. It means that you talk to your family members, you talk about life, you talk about school, you talk about work, you give advice, and you call them out when they're acting dumb. Being a part of a family doesn't mean that you sit on the couch watching your shows with your AirPods in, completely ignoring everyone else. A family is a place to belong, but it is also a call to action. In the same way, to be a part of a church means that you are a part of a fellowship, but it also means that you actively do fellowship, that you actively fellowship. Well, what's that look like? Let's let the Apostle Paul remind us in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 15. That's going to be our text today. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 15 and we'll answer the question, what is this action that we're called to do? A lot of times we use the word fellowship, maybe so much that it's lost a lot of its meaning, but we mean it simply that we hang out with each other, that we spend time together, that we're socializing. You know, after the service dismissed, I then stuck around and fellowshiped for 24 minutes. Then I went home. Well, you talked for 24 minutes but maybe you truly only fellowshiped for two of those minutes. And so let's let this passage guide us to make sure that where we arrive in our interactions with each other is true biblical Christian fellowship. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 15. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In this passage, we're going to see six characteristics of Christian fellowship. Six characteristics of true biblical Christian fellowship. And the first is sincerity in our love. Sincerity in our love. Verses 9 to 10. Verse 9 calls us to genuine love. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and if you translate the original Greek into English, this phrase that you see at the beginning of verse 9 would say, let love be without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy originally referred to an actor who stood on stage in a play. Actors pretend. Actors 
do things and say things that don't match with who they truly are. And so you, you get the point. In your love, don't pretend. You see, hypocritical love is happy to be in character for a few minutes or however long it takes. And then once you stop interacting with people or you don't need to love them anymore, then you go back to who you really are. Well, why, why is our love sometimes hypocritical? Why is our love sometimes so fake? Well, it might be because we just want something from people. So we'll say nice things to them. We'll do nice things for them. We'll spend time with them. Hey, we might even say, I love you. But really, we have this hidden agenda, a selfish agenda. Another reason our love might be hypocritical is because we want people to think of us a certain way. We want to be thought of as loving. Oh, we want the reputation of being a loving person. We want people to go around telling other people, oh yeah, that guy, yeah, he's really loving. After all, it's cool to be loving in Christian circles. Uh, when I lived in L.A., uh, probably once a year, I would go to a Dodgers game. Now, I am not a Dodgers fan. I am also not a Giants fan. Baseball just really isn't my cup of tea. I'm not really into it. But down there in L.A., people go crazy for the Dodgers. They wear that blue hat religiously. And if they find out that you, or in this case me, is not a Dodger fan, you get interrogated. Why? 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 Why Why are you not a Dodgers fan? I mean, we got the best team. We have the best stadium in the nation, Dodger Stadium. We have the best hot dogs in the nation, the Dodger dog. And so when I would go to these Dodger games and I'd be sitting there in the bleachers, I would have to pretend. I would have to put on a mask. Otherwise, I would get angry looks. And Dodger Stadium, trust me, is not a place you want to upset people. So I would have to do my best to pretend. Yay, Dodgers! Clayton Kershaw, he's good. He throws the ball real good. And why was it that I felt the need to pretend? Well, it's because I wanted people to think of me a certain way. And the same thing can happen in the church. We can be hypocritical. We can be fake in our love because we want people to think of us a certain way. Well, here Paul says, we don't want any of that fake love around here. It must come from the heart. And he goes on to explain what genuine love is. Verse 9, abhor what is evil Hold fast to what is good. It's so interesting what Paul is doing here. It's so interesting that he ties love with morality. That he ties love with right and wrong. Abhor evil, hate it, detest it. And in contrast, hold fast to what is good. Cling to it, grab on to good, and don't let it good. Why? Why should evil be so ugly to us? And why should goodness be so beautiful, so attractive to us? Well, remember the context. We're talking about love. This juxtaposition is significant. We hate evil and cling to good because we sincerely love people. You see, sincere love must hate. It must hate evil. Because evil is bad for people. Sin corrupts people's minds, steals their joy, burdens their heart with guilt, deteriorates their relationship with other people, and oftentimes leads to a spiral down into deeper sin and deeper darkness. And so we hate to see that. If we truly love someone, we will hate the sin that causes people to go down that path. And when we truly love someone, we will cling to what is good, what is moral, upright, just, and honest, because those things are helpful for people. Uh, those things are healthy for people. 
it leads to their highest good. And so we will do good to people and we will help people to do good because that leads to their greatest joy and their greatest growth. Verse 10 continues to exhort us in love, love one another with brotherly affection. The Greek word for brotherly affection is Philadelphia, which we know as the city of brotherly love. Uh, You see people in church, just um, they're, they're not just your friends. They are your family. We've all been forgiven of our sins and adopted into God's family. And sure, maybe you feel like you don't really know the people at this church that well yet, especially since we're a pretty new church plant. And so you know this truth that you're adopted into God's family, but it just doesn't feel that way. It feels more like we've all been adopted from different families around the world and we've been brought into God's living room together and we're just awkwardly staring at each other and everyone you know is your brother and sister, but feels more like acquaintances. Well, this, this verse is extremely important because the sooner we get to showing this brotherly affection, the sooner we get to jumping in and showing this love, the sooner this church is going to feel like a family. The sooner this church will feel like brothers and sisters in Christ, the way God designed it, uh, the sooner that we get to experience the, the closeness, the connection the tenderness and encouragement that a family is meant to have. That's why verse 10 continues basically by saying, get to it, get to loving each other. Verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. To show honor to someone is to treat them as significant, to speak respectfully toward them, to show appreciation, to uh, be quick to acknowledge their strengths and their accomplishments, to be quick to acknowledge verbally all the ways that you see God is working in their life. And Paul throws out a little friendly competition when he says, outdo one another in showing honor. You see that element of competition, outdo each other. Who's going who's gonna to outdo the other people? Who's going to win this competition? Who's going to out love, out honor, out encourage, out appreciate the people here? And it's kind of a funny, ironic competition, right? Try to be number one in making others around you number one. If we play that game, we're going to start feeling like a family real quick. That's the first characteristic of Christian fellowship, sincerity in our love. Secondly, let's turn to passion in our service. Verse 11. Let's read that. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be slothful. Don't be lazy. Be zealous. Be passionate. Be excited. Be fervent in spirit. Have this burning hot energy in your soul. And then that last phrase gives focus to the first two. Serve the Lord. Don't be lazy, but have a burning hot energy in your soul that boils over into serving God. Be a doer, be a go-getter. Take the initiative to serve the God who saved you. R.C. Sproul said this, the kingdom of God cannot cannot be a secondary interest for a true Christian. We are to be diligent, not lazy, Not indolent, but active in the things of God. Our service to Christ is the chief business that we should be involved in. I like that. It's a quote that reminds us that the kingdom of God is of primary importance in this life. And if that's the case, then our service to God the King should also be of primary importance. The second point about serving the Lord uh, is important to keep in mind because the rest of this passage uh, will will be Paul going on to talk about serving other people. And so we have to remember as we go through the rest of this passage that when we serve other people, ultimately we are serving the Lord. 
that if we truly are passionate about serving God, we will also be passionate about serving God's people. And at the same time, if we are deficient in our love for other people, that just shows that we are deficient in our love for God. If we're lacking in zeal to serve other people, then we lack in zeal ultimately to serve God. Let's move on to the third mark of fellowship in the church, and that's found in verse 12. It's perseverance in our trials. Perseverance in our trials. Paul writes, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. If you grasp the hope that God offers, you will rejoice. Now, there's so much that's wrapped up in this one little word, hope. Heaven. Streets of gold. Being reunited with your loved ones in Christ. A glorified body. Freedom from the presence of sin. No more sickness. No more pain. No more suffering. And Jesus, like you've never had him before. Fellowship with him like you've never had before because you're no longer weighed down and encumbered by sin. This is our hope. And if you understand this hope, it will lead to rejoicing. And when we have this joyful hope, then we can secondly be patient in tribulation. We can patiently endure any trial because our hope tells us that Jesus is coming back and this trial will end because Jesus comes back to make all things new. Because he comes to make everything right. In the meantime, pray. Verse 12 ends, be constant in prayer. Pray for strength. Pray for the grace that you need to endure these trials. Many times God brings us through trials. He brings us through the fire. He brings us through the pain because he wants to drive us to our knees in prayer. He wants to remind us that that we're not to rely on ourselves. And so he's prying us off of relying on ourselves and putting our hands to grab onto him in prayer. So God calls us to persevere in our trials. And this is so hard when you have to do it by yourself. When you feel like you have to carry the burden of your pain and your suffering and your trial all by yourself and you feel like you have no one to talk to. It's quite dreadful to go through the pains of life alone. So much better and so much easier it is when you have someone by your side who will stick with you through the pain And we'll bear that burden with you. Fellowship is experienced when we rejoice together in the hope that we all have. Fellowship is experienced when we persevere through trials together, arm in arm, side by side. And when we pray together, when we pray for each other, when we pray with each other, and when you have other people praying for you when you're just too weak to pray on your own. Let's look at the fourth mark of fellowship. It is generosity in our hospitality. Verse 13. Let's read verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here we see that we are to be generous toward the saints. That is Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we see here that sometimes to open up your heart to others means that you open up your wallets to them. And that might mean that you give directly to contribute to their needs, as the first part of verse 13 says. But at other times, it means that you contribute financially and you help people out by showing hospitality, as the second part of verse 13 says. The word hospitality in Greek literally means love of strangers. Love of strangers is the combination of two 
Greek words, philo and xenos. Uh, philo meaning love and xenos meaning stranger or foreigner. Now that philo, the word for love, you might recognize it because we talked about it earlier. We got a whoop whoop over here from someone from Philadelphia because philo is a shortened version of Philadelphia. And so this is insightful in that we are showing this brotherly affection that we had back in verse 10, not just to people we know well, but also to strangers. We show this deep affection, this, this brotherly affection to people that we just don't know that well. People that we meet for the first time. Friends of friends. That new visitor who's there for the first time at church. Now, when we hear the word hospitality, uh, we immediately think of using our homes, right? We think of inviting people over for dinner and sitting them down in our living room that we scrambled to clean just an hour before and sipping on tea or eating dessert, and that's hospitality. And certainly that's a big part of the manifestation of hospitality. But when we look into what hospitality actually is, in its technical sense, it is a love of strangers, which means that hospitality is first and foremost a heart issue. It is not something we do on the outside. It is an attitude that we have. It is this attitude of, I'm not just going to hang out with my friends, but I'm going to hang out with people that I don't consider a friend. I'm going to make them my friend. I'm not just going to stay in my normal orbit. I'm going to branch out. I'm going to break away and talk to someone that I don't normally talk with. And not only that, I'm going to do my best to show them brotherly affection. Now, certainly, opening up your home is a really effective way of doing this, of expressing this heart of love, and a great way of doing hospitality. Mikasa es su casa, right? But a lot of times, we don't feel that way. Especially when it comes to people we don't know that well. Mikasa es mi casa. I need my space. I worked hard for this place. I earned it. I need my alone time. But listen to Alexander Strzok as he speaks to the power of using your home in ministry. Through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions, our family, home, finances, food, privacy, and time. Indeed, we share our very lives. Unless we open the doors of our homes to one another, the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of loving brothers and sisters is only a theory. You see what he's saying there? Hospitality is a way that you show your love. It's the real test. And perhaps your dining table will be your most effective ministry tool. Hospitality isn't easy. Loving friends is easy. Uh, Loving people that you meet for the first time is not easy. Loving people that you click with is easy. Loving people where you have that conversation and it just seems like you're talking on different wavelengths, that is not easy. Chatting with people on a Sunday morning that you just met for the first time for 10 minutes, that's easy. But connecting with them throughout the week, asking them to hang out, asking them into your home, that's not easy. That's hard. But you see, it's the difficulty of hospitality that makes it stand out. Because people know that hospitality is hard, that it takes a lot of effort to take the initiative to invite someone into your home, to invite someone to to hang out and spend time together. It's hard to love strangers. People know that, and so they appreciate it all the more. It's hard to care for someone you just met, but if you do that for someone, they will recognize that, and they will feel greatly loved. There was an L.A. Times reporter who visited several churches and wrote an article evaluating how loving each church was. 
and he assigned a point system to objectively evaluate how loving these churches were. And this is the point system that he used. Uh, If they had a greeter who greeted him at the door, it was worth two points. If the pastor greeted him, three points. If the church had a time where they could talk over coffee, five points. If someone took the initiative to introduce themselves to him, it was worth 10 points. If he got an invitation to spend time outside of church, it was worth 60 points. I think that's really telling. This non-Christian LA Times reporter is saying that the invitation to hang out outside of church was 30 times more loving than a greeter greeting him at the door, 20 times more loving than a greeting from the pastor, 12 times more loving than being a part of a coffee time, and six times more loving than someone talking to him on a Sunday morning. Hospitality is so powerful. It expresses love so powerfully and so effective because people know that it costs you something. Today in America, in many ways, we've been liberated from the burden of showing hospitality because we have so much technology and we have an app for everything that allows us to take care of ourselves more easily than ever before. We have hotels, we have Airbnb, we don't have to ask people for rides anymore because we have Uber and we have Lyft. We have DoorDash on our phone, and if you wanted to, you could open your DoorDash app and you can order yourself a barbecue tri-tip sandwich during the sermon, and it will be ready for you at the door by the time we dismiss. Order me one while you're at it. (laughs) And so there's so many conveniences of modern life that make hospitality just not as needed anymore. But even though it's not as needed, it is still a powerful way of expressing love. In fact, because hospitality is nearly obsolete and so few people do it anymore, it speaks all the more powerfully. It's all the more special. It all the more expresses a heart of love, Christian love that we're called to have here The new visitors at our church are going to default to taking care of themselves. They don't want to bother us, right? They want to pick up their lunch on on their way home. Uh, They'd rather just Uber to the airport. They don't want to bother us. But what if we did it the old-fashioned way? What if we invited people over for dinner and shared a home-cooked meal with them? What if they had to go on a trip and we said, forget Uber. I'm taking you to the airport. What if we said, forget Uber? going home after a long day of work and just watching your shows by yourself. We're hanging out. We're talking. If anything, we're going to watch shows together. See, hospitality is so costly, but it will go so far in expressing your love because it is costly and so rare. Number five, let's now turn to graciousness in our conflicts. Another mark of Christian fellowship Verse 14 reads, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. A lot of times persecution makes us think of non-Christians who persecute Christians, those outside the church who persecute those inside the church. And certainly that is a main manifestation of persecution. But the word is broader than that. It speaks of causing someone to suffer either physically or emotionally. And so this can come from someone inside the church or outside the church. Anyone causing you harm, bless them. Anyone causing you pain, bless them. Paul actually repeats this command for emphasis. Bless those who persecute you. And in case you guys didn't hear me, uh, let me say it again. Bless and do not curse them. Paul is making sure we don't miss this. He wants to make this crystal clear. Why? Because this is so counterintuitive. By nature, we want to persecute the people that persecute us. If we get cursed, we want to curse back. By nature, we want to hit back. But Paul says to bless them. 
which means to wish them the very best. Hope for the best in their life. Hope for their highest good and then carry out doing that good to them. And friends, this is grace. Uh, This is giving them better than they deserve. Uh, This is unmerited favor. This is embracing suffering and embracing insults and embracing persecution with a gracious heart. I hate to break it to you guys, but the church is not a perfect place. There are sinners in our midst. All y'all and me are imperfect people. We are all sinners. There is no such thing as a perfect church. And so if you are looking for a perfect church, you won't find it. And if you ever do find it, they say, don't join it because you will make it imperfect. And so there are sinners in every church. If you found yourself stumbling into City Light Bible Church, you've stumbled upon, yes, a family. Yes, brothers and sisters that are striving to show affection to one another, but also brothers and sisters that fight. And so it's only a matter of time before you find yourself in a conflict with someone else. It's only a matter of time before someone says something to offend you. And it's pretty easy just to ignore these people. It's pretty easy to figure out a way to coexist with them. But here we're called to something more. We're called to something higher. Bless them with your words and with your tangible acts of love. Don't just hide from them. Don't just distance yourself from them. Lean in and show them this brotherly affection. Lean in and outdo them in showing honor. Let's now turn to verse 15 and look at our sixth characteristic of Christian fellowship. Sympathy in our friendships. We are to have sympathy in our friendships. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. This verse reminds us that we have a long way to go in our fellowship. This is a lofty, lofty goal that we would feel so close to the people at this church, that we would feel so connected to the people here, that our hearts would be so tightly knit together that what hurts you hurts me. And a success and accomplishment in your life makes my heart sore as well. This kind of fellowship doesn't happen overnight. This kind of sympathy does not happen overnight. It takes time. It takes initiative. It takes intentionality. And so let's get to it. Uh, Let's get to it to try to have this kind of, of sympathy for each other and to try to apply this whole passage as a church. What do we have to do in application? Well, As you can tell, this passage itself is extremely practical, and so it's pretty straightforward in how to apply it. They're all commands, yet I'd love to give you a few pointers. Number one, focus on one or two. In a passage like this, with all these commands, and in a sermon like this with six points, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And at the same time, it's very easy to feel like you're only going to apply this in a general way. It's easy to take this passage as a whole and try to apply it generally. Okay, I get it. I got to hang out with people more. I got to be with Christians more. I got to pursue community. And, And to do that would be to apply this passage in a very general way, but also to end up in the territory of simply socializing. And hanging out, small talk. What we've seen in this passage is that fellowship is very specific. We've been given specific pointers for what fellowship is to look like. We've we've been given six of them. And so my encouragement to you is to take one or two of the six and seek to actually apply it this week. Here's what I would do. 
I would choose one that you know you're weak in, that you know you have room to grow in, and then I would find a friend, a trusted friend, someone you know that loves you, got your back, and ask them to choose one for you. It is dangerous. It might hurt a little bit. You might not like what you hear from that friend, but this is going to be so helpful in pointing out a blind spot in your life, in helping you to grow in an area where you need it. So pick one or two of these characteristics of fellowship to grow in, because this passage is, as we've been saying, a call to action. The sad thing is a lot of people do church like watching a movie. And when you watch a movie, you sit back, relax, munch on your popcorn, and watch. And then afterwards, you tell people whether you liked it or you didn't like it. And you tell people what you liked about it and what you didn't like about it. But church is not like watching a movie. Church is more like playing a team sport. And if there's anyone that's a part of the team that's inactive and not doing their role, then the whole team suffers. It's not going to go well for a basketball team with four players on the court and one player in the locker room checking his phone. It's not going to go well for a football team where one of the receivers is laying down on the soft grass taking a nap. And in the same way, it's not going to go well for a church when there are people who don't understand that fellowship is a call to action. Paul writes commands in this passage. A second great way to apply this passage is to join a small group. Uh, Next Sunday, we will be introducing our small groups and kicking off our small group season, which goes from the fall through the spring. And the small groups themselves will start sometime in the next couple of months. And so what we're going to do next week is we're going to have all the small group leaders come up to the front here, and they're going to give a description, uh, a little insight into what their group is going to emphasize and what their group is going to study. Uh, They're also going to give you some logistical information about where they're meeting and what time they're meeting, and you'll be able to choose the small group that's a good fit for you. And I I do encourage you to join a small group because a a lot of our ministry as a church plant is driven out of what happens in homes. We we only have this building on Sunday mornings. And small groups really end up being the heart and soul of the ministry of City Light Bible Church. That's where love happens happens. Uh, That's where fellowship happens. And yeah, I I think it happens on Sunday mornings as well. And I hope that we we grow in, in making fellowship happen on Sunday mornings, but it happens most frequently at the deepest level and in its most authentic form at the small group level. And so I can't say it more strongly than this. If you want to do City Light Bible Church right, join a small group. That your experience at City Light Bible Church will be incomplete if all you do is attend Sunday morning and you're not a part of a small group. Let's look at a third way of applying today's sermon. It is to look to Jesus who is our ultimate example of how to do all of this. Jesus loves us with sincerity. There's not a drop of hypocrisy in his love because he proved the genuineness of his love when he carried a wooden cross up Calvary's hill and he was nailed to it through his hands and his feet, when he wore a crown of thorns that was thrust upon his head, when he endured the mockery that we were supposed to endure, and when he died the death that we deserved. Jesus abhorred evil so much that he died to cleanse us from it. 
that he died to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus loved good so much. He clung to good so much that he gave up his life that we might be redeemed to a life of holiness and righteousness. Jesus outdid all of us in showing honor because he took dirty, rotten, sinful, scoundrel rebels like us and elevated us to the position of sons and daughters of the king. During his time on earth, Jesus was not slothful in zeal, but he passionately served his father. He came to earth with a mission not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to do the will of his father, the mission that his father had sent him on, so that even in his darkest hour, as he stared his crucifixion in the face in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus persevered in his greatest trial. He set his face like flint in marching to Calvary, like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. Jesus did not open his mouth. He endured this great, great suffering of the cross without a word. Jesus was generous. He contributed to the needs of others throughout his whole time on earth. He gave bread and fish. He healed. He cast out demons. He loved. He spoke words that were dripping with grace and truth. And he met our greatest need in making us right with God. It was Jesus who taught, love your enemies. And if your enemy strikes you, turn the other cheek. And he is the one who lived out his own teaching when he blessed those who persecuted him. When he was hanging on the cross and people hurled insults at him, he responded with, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is our sympathetic friend. The one who weeps when we're in pain. See him by Lazarus's tomb, weeping knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but feeling the pain of Mary and Martha, feeling that the pain of all mankind that lives life under the curse where death is a thing. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest who took on human flesh and has been tried and tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Yes, look to Jesus this morning. Friend, and you will find the ultimate example of this passage. You will find him as your north star for how to navigate true biblical Christian fellowship. And if you're visiting with us here today, uh, we're so thankful you're here. But if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus savingly, then, then don't, don't look to Jesus as your example, first and foremost. Look to Jesus, yes, but look to him first and foremost as your Savior. Uh, look to Jesus as your one and only hope of the forgiveness of sins. Look to him as a substitute who was crucified and slain, paying the penalty for your sin. Look to him as your Savior, the Lamb who was slain, who took on all of your sin and all of your guilt so that you, the guilty one, could go free. Look to Jesus this morning with the eyes of faith and salvation will be yours today that's the lead pastor of city light bible church of the south bay pastor chris g this has been the church of the week showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater san francisco bay area to nominate your congregation for church of the week please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.